For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Hebrews is a letter to Jewish Christians. Uh, they're under heavy persecution. These are people who are, you know, traditionally from rabbinic Judaism who have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They still see themselves as Jewish people, but they see themselves as believing that the word of God has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And they're being persecuted because of it. And they're sort of wrestling with this. For them, they were in a situation that was a little unique because many of them had been raised in Judaism. They were identified themselves as, as Jewish people. And at this time, there wasn't a clear delineation between Judaism and Christianity. Christians were viewed by many as just sort of uh, Jewish people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. It wasn't viewed as a different religion. So as they're getting persecuted for this, uh, in, in some serious ways, they're thinking, well, if I, if I just give this up or just be quiet about this, I can go back to rabbinic Judaism and this will stop. And how bad would it be to do that? Because, you know, uh, that's the Abraham and Moses, you know, that's the religion of my ancestors. And would it be like, would it that really be betraying God in some way by just kind of rewinding back to the whole before Jesus thing? Is that okay to do? Why, why wouldn't I do that? Was the question on a lot of their hearts. And so this book is really written to get out that question for them. And so, but it's also filled with insights for us. So the book's structure as a whole is chapters one through six is really about how Christ is the ultimate picture of God, that he is the fullness of the, the nature of the God of the Old Testament. And that if you deny Jesus, you're denying all of it because he is all of it. And that's the argument that the author's making there. In chapters 7 through 10, he's talking about the new covenant that, you know, what's happened is through Jesus Christ, God has come in and established a new way of relating to us, but he's not a new God. He's still the God of love. He's still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He still has the same character. He still has the same nature. But the deal that he's made with our ancestors has now changed as the Old Testament predicted that it would. So he's helping them to understand and connect what they're seeing in the teachings of Jesus Christ with the history of rabbinic Judaism. And then chapters 11 through 13, which is where we're starting, is really about the centrality of faith. That faith is what God wants. It's what God wanted in the Old Testament. It's what God wants in the New Testament. Faith is how we relate to God. The point, really, that the author is wanting to make to his audience and the overarching picture here is that this is not a new religion and this is not a new God. And there is a definite continuity from God's approach from the Garden of Eden to the present day, and we need to see how it all connects because it is beautiful, it is marvelous, it is wonderful, and it will encourage you to persevere through the suffering that you're going through. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, chapter 1, starts with God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. You see what he's doing? He's saying Jesus and God are one. 
They're the same entity. They have the same nature, the same character. Jesus is the ultimate form of understanding who God is. God's spoken to us through the prophets, and that was great. And those were true, and no one's contesting that. But that was an intermediary. Now what's happened is God himself has come to dwell among us. And we can see and understand who he is even more clearly through that experience. This is the same God with the same nature, the same character. And he's always wanted the same thing, a relationship with us. That's why we were created. We were created for love. Love for one another, love for God. Love is the central value of God. It's the thing that brings it all together. If you could boil all of Scripture down to one word, it would be love. And that's true of the Old Testament and the New Testament, both. And what has also been true and will always continue to be true is that faith is the way to relating to and connecting with God. So we get into our passage, Hebrews 11, verse 1, and we get this classic definition of biblical faith. This is like, if you ask any Bible scholar, what is faith? They'll be like, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. And we're like, yeah, that's not as clear as you think it is, Ryan. Like, that, I still have questions. Like, what... What is faith? And do you notice how he connects it to the Old Testament, right? He says, faith, for this is how the men of old gained approval. This is how Abraham and Isaac and Jacob related to God was through faith. And this is how we are to relate to God through faith. He's calling forth imagery that they would have been very familiar. Think with things like in Genesis 15, 6, then God told Abram, Abram believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is a key passage because it's really clear. Abram, who became Abraham, was the founder of the Jewish religion. He's at the top of the important characters and figures in the Old Testament. And he had a special relationship with God. How did he have a special relationship with God? Because he believed God. It's not that he followed. It's not that he acted. It's not that he earned. It's not that he made sacrifices. It's not that he was religious. It was that he believed. That was what made the connection. That made him connected with God in the way that God wants us connected with him and with each other. It was faith. So the author is saying, and you know, this has always been this way. Now, faith is something that we're confused about, and we, we, we wrestle with this. What is biblical faith? The question is, what does the Bible mean when it says faith? And we think of things like blind faith, a blind leap. That image is from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. <laughs> Remember, you know, it's like he had to make a leap of faith, and he, like, oh, what is a blind leap? It's like you do something ridiculous that should not work, and you're stupid if you try. Right? And he steps out, and oh, there was a beam there that he couldn't see. You know? And it's like, that's what a lot of times we think God wants from us. God's like, throw yourself off, off a cliff if you love me, and I'll prove my goodness to you. And we're like, hmm. I don't know that that sounds right. And it's not. That's not what God wants. That's not what God is asking for. 
That is like a, a perverted distortion that's really designed to turn us off to the idea of faith. The idea that we just believe because we're told to believe, or that we believe you know, because we're bad if we don't believe, or uh, we're, we're wrong if we ask questions, that somehow God gets upset if we want information, then why did he give us brains? Why did he make us the way that we are with such indelible curiosity if we're not meant to understand the way that things are? Blind faith is not what God's looking for. Other people was like, well, it's believing in something despite the evidence, right? Faith is, you know, this thing where it's like, okay, I know that this probably isn't true and all the evidence to the contrary, but I believe in it anyway because I have faith. That is not biblical faith either. That's just another version of the blind leap where it's like, well, you have the courage to believe in something that is almost certainly untrue. That's not courage. It's ignorance. That's not what God wants in his followers is people who are like, I believe this no matter what the evidence says. Although a lot of Christians sound that way. That is not who God wants us to be. The last one that we tend to say is just, it's just believing something you know isn't true, right? It's just something inherently, you know, this is false, but I believe it anyway because I have faith. And we imagine that God is like, Yeah, that's what I want. Blind ignorance. He is a brilliant being who wants to relate with us, who wants to connect with us. He doesn't want automatons, blind, ignorant followers. He wants people to connect and to relate to and to enjoy. And so none of that has anything to do with biblical faith. We have to drill down into this a little bit deeper to get a better understanding. You know, originally this text was written in Greek. And what I would propose is there's two main terms here. There's two main words, two main aspects to biblical faith that we have to understand in order to lock in what is it that the author meant when they, when they wrote this. And the words that are important, the most important here are faith and conviction. And we could easily translate those words, those two components, as faith is about trust and it's about action. That's what biblical faith is about. Trust, and the the Greek word here is pistis, that is literally the Greek word for trust, yet it's translated as faith. And the reason is, is because in the context of the bigger picture of what's being said here, really how this should be translated is Believing what God says is true. Trusting what God says. Faith is trusting what God says. That's the first component. And that's what we need to understand is that we need to trust in God's character and his promises. God says, I love you and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are valuable. You are important. You are my image bearers. And I consider you my children. Is he trustworthy? Can we believe that? Can we view him that way? Eternal life is real, that this life is not the only life that matters. In fact, eternal life, where we move from this life into eternity, matters a lot more because it's eternal. That's the ongoing reality of who we are that when these bodies die and we shuffle off these mortal coils, 
that we continue to be who we are and continue to relate and connect and, and, and know one another. That that's something that's real. And we can do things in this life that will have an impact on eternity. That's real. Do we trust that? Because that's going to have a big impact on how we live our lives, what our priorities are, what matters most. Can we trust that Jesus died so that we could be reunited together with God in faith? Are we willing to believe that, understand that? Is that something we can trust? That's the first component of faith. The second is the word that they translate as conviction, which is an interesting, and I mean, neither of these translations are bad. It's just, it doesn't have the fullness of, of the teeth of, of the Greek meaning behind it, and it, it's so helpful. So that word then is elenkos, and elenkos means proof. And so what does it mean that we would have the proof of things unseen? And what it's talking about is that we would Trust in the character of God to the point where we're willing to prove them as true. It's not that God proves himself to us. It's that we prove God as true by putting into action the things that he says. That's what's, what's being talked about here. That we're not just moved to, to emotionally or mentally to believe and say, oh, I think that's true. But it's trusting God to the point of proving him true in the way that we live our lives. What he's saying here is, is that mental assent is not enough. And that's something that's easy. You know, mental assent is like, oh, yeah, I believe in God. There's got to be something greater than myself out there. I was raised going to Sunday school, and I, as far as I know, everybody in my family has been a Christian at one point or another, so that must make me a Christian. I don't see any reason why I would deny that. And yes, I am a believer in God and Jesus Christ. There are people, you know, that have that, but they don't know what it means, and they don't put it into action. It's all up here sort of in theory, but in practice and the way they live their lives and what they do, it doesn't really factor into how they look at the world. It's verbal acknowledgement without action. Now, a lot of you are like, uh-oh, is he about to say that we have to act in order for faith to be real? No, but what I am saying is if your faith is real, you will act. It's not a condition. It's a result. The sufficient faith results in change, results in a movement. And if you ever live your whole life and you say, I'm a Christian, and, but like God doesn't really factor into any of your decision making, you're making huge life decisions. Who to marry, what to do for a living, do I buy this house, you know, uh, all these things, and you're not praying about it ever, you're not even thinking about, well, what does God want here? Like, you are saying you believe that the all-powerful crea creator God of the universe has a personal relationship with you and you don't want to consult him on anything? What does that mean? What is that faith? That's, that's something that should, we should say, well, that's odd. 
And I don't mean at all to say like that you do this perfectly. No one does it perfectly. I'm just saying, do we do it at all, ever? Does it factor in? Does what God says factor into how we live? Yes, we're going to fall and we're going to screw it up over and over and over again. And it's going to be imperfect. It's going to be messy because we are broken. But does it matter? Is there any tension in your heart? And are you striving to put the things of God into practice? Or is it just all up here and you haven't really thought it through and you haven't really wrestled with it? That is, that falls short of biblical faith. And one of the real issues with that is when testing comes along, when trials and, you know, hardship comes along, faith is the first thing that's jettisoned. And that's what's happening with our audience, right? They've said that they believe in Jesus Christ, and now all these terrible things are happening. They're having, they're being alienated. They took a risk to follow Jesus. Jesus was not that popular. They killed him, you know. He had a lot of powerful enemies. The religious rulers of Jerusalem, the Roman Empire, a lot of people saying a lot of terrible things. And their desire was to see this movement snuffed out. And you're going to join? There was a lot of risk associated with that. It put them in a religious minority. It caused rifts in family relationships. Husbands and wives, fathers and daughters, mothers and sons, people being divided over what is it that this means and what does it say and what does it mean to be Jewish is really at the heart of what was happening in the first century. And there were great consequences because they made this decision. They were being disowned by family members, kicked out of synagogues. Their property, in some cases, was being seized and sold right out from under them. And when that stuff starts happening because of what you believe, you better, you better bet that you're going to start being like, how important is this at this point? How much do I believe? Is this worth losing my house, my job, my place in society, my life? I mean, if you hadn't worked through how much you believe in this thing before, you're going to work through that now because there are going to be major repercussions for your actions. And that is the way that faith works is it has an impact, a major impact on how you see the world and how you live. We face this as well. We're not in the same exact situation that they were in, although it seems like we're headed more and more toward that. But we can ask that same question, will putting my faith in action cost me something? I had an incredible opportunity as a young believer. I went to um, China. And I went as a foreign exchange student. And I spent three months there. And I was sharing my faith with uh, some of the, the people I met there. And there was one guy, he was brilliant. He was an English major. I don't speak Chinese at all, just so you know. That, that, no. <laughs> he was an English major, so he had brilliant English. So we were able to converse, and we started studying the Bible together. And we went through all the, the, the passages that were important for understanding faith, and he had never heard any of it before, and it was so interesting and so compelling to see him wrestle with the. He had zero presuppositions about what Christianity was. 
And it was getting time for me to go home, and he was sort of still wrestling and hadn't made a decision. And I, I said, you know, I'd really love to know, like, what's holding you back? And he said, let me tell you a story. He said, my father's an engineer. He's very successful. That's why I'm able to be in college. And I'm getting a master's degree in English. And he said, my father in his engineering position was approached one day by the Communist Party because my father wasn't a communist. And they said, you have a really nice job. And my dad said, thanks, I know. And they said, do you want to keep it? And they said, yes, I do. And they said, then you need to join the Communist Party. And he said, my dad joined the Communist Party because he, he's not a communist, he didn't believe in communism, but he wanted to keep his job. And so my non-Christian Chinese friend who had never heard anything about the Bible and had been studying it with me for only two or three weeks said, uh, well, it was two or three months. He looked at me and he said, you know, if I accept Christ, I want to be successful in my business, and one day the Communist Party is going to come to me and they're going to say, you're not a communist. And I, I kid you not, his words were, I don't want to be like Peter and deny Christ. And it just really struck me, one, how brilliant he was, but two, it was also, you know, he was wrestling with something before he became a Christian that I never had to wrestle with. I was like, Christian, I'll try that out. We'll see how it goes. God, don't let me down or I'll be a Buddhist or something else. <laughs> there was very little cost for me when I became a Christian in 1994. I didn't have to confront a question like that at the opening, at the beginning, and he did. And, you know, I just, I just thought there and I just sat there and prayed and I just said, I got to be honest with you, if I were in your shoes at the time that I became a Christian, I don't think I would have become a Christian because I was ignorant, and I was weak, and I was afraid of suffering. But I can tell you, knowing what I know now, I would. And I'm sorry that you have to wrestle with that question up front. But it shows me how much you understand the reality of what God is speaking into your life about. And he did wind up receiving Christ. Because you know, this forces us to ask that question, is what I believe worth it? For us, it could mean, and it often does mean, alienation from family members and friends. Some of us are from backgrounds where, you know, it's okay to be anything other than a Christian. That's kind of a popular thing, is anything but that. You know, we risk becoming that guy or girl to coworkers and neighbors. And that's just growing and intensifying. The, the, the negativity and the sense of, of judgment and, uh, and the lack of understanding about what it means to be a Christian, in no small part because of terrible ways that Christians have represented us to our culture. I'm not even saying we don't deserve it. I'm just saying that Christ doesn't deserve it. And that there's this, this twisted version brings a heavy price. And so you and I have to wrestle with, is it worth the price? Not only now, but we're going to wrestle with that more, I think, as time goes on. That question is going to become more and more important to us in our faith. Is it worth the price? Which is the exact question that the Hebrew audience was asking that the author of this book was answering. And we'll say, well, at least, you know, God, you'll protect me, right? If I, if I decide to join your team, you're not going to let terrible things to happen to me, right? 
Well, Jesus said in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do for you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. So we ask God, will you, okay, if, if I take this risk, you'll, you'll protect me from cancer and my kids from getting hit by a car and, you know, the really bad things, right? And God is like, his answer, frankly, is, well, they crucified me. So, no, I'm not, I, no. You're still vulnerable to the fallenness of this world. I love you, and I will move in your life. And your place in eternity is sealed. But this life is still going to be hard. In fact, if you follow me, I may even lead you into more discomfort than you would have had otherwise. And we have to wrestle with that. Not a great sales pitch. You know, just thinking about like, okay, that's, that's real, that's honest. That's not like, hey, join my team. I'll tell you whatever you want. It's like, join my team, we're here to suffer. There's a war and we're gonna suffer. <laughs> Jesus' greatest sales pitch of all time. Behold, I send you out as sheep among the wolves. And you're like, oh, that sounds terrible. Who wants to be a sheep among the wolves? Well, at least will Christianity make me happy? No, it won't. Look at what Jesus says on that, John 10, 9 through 10. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He doesn't promise happiness, but he promises us an abundant life. A life filled with purpose, a life filled with meaning, a life filled with love, a life filled with relationship. That doesn't necessarily mean happiness. The emotion of being happy is such an idol in our culture. It's something that we, that we want because we don't understand that there's so many more powerful and meaningful experiences. I will take knowing my purpose and knowing why I'm here and what I'm here to do and how it fits in the picture of eternity over happiness any day of the week because it fills you with something greater than happiness, it's joy. And yet joy, you can suffer a lot in joy. It's not the same as happiness. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 29, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. If you're striving and you feel like there is something wrong and I can't figure it out, I'm living my way through this life and it, something's off. I keep trying to find fulfillment. I find it in work and money and relationships and substances and entertainment and video games and sex and all these other things and it never works. I always feel broken. My soul is never at peace. 
Jesus says, that I can do. That's, that's, you were made to need me. And all that stuff that you're feeling and experiencing and trying to fill your life up with, there's only one thing. And that's me who can put your soul at rest. He says in John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus is saying to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Freedom is something that God promises us. Freedom and rest and peace and purpose. But not comfort and not happiness. That's what he's selling. He says, I'm your creator and I made you for these things and you can know the fullness of who you were intended to me and you can enjoy it with me and others in eternity forever. But faith is the path to those things. So will Christianity make me happy? Not a good question. Is Christianity true? A far more important question. Because when the suffering comes and the hardship comes and the testing comes, our Hebrew audience, this is the question that they want to know. Is this real or am I suffering for a lie? And the author goes on and says, well, it's evidence-based, it's faith-centered, it's relationally rewarding, it's eternally rewarding, but the first step is hard. That's his answer to that question. I want to fly through it. Look at what he says, Hebrews 11, verse 3. He says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So interesting. He says, listen, if you want to know if this is true, just look out into creation. God spoke the universe into being. And for them, that might have been more of a blind leap. But for us, it's less. If we look at the bigger picture of the creation of the universe, and as we advance in our understanding of science, we are finding some very interesting things about the way that the Bible describes the universe being created. It says that God spoke the universe into creation. It's called creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then science gets together, and they debate, and they, they connect, and move into all these areas of physics and uh, astronomy and all these different areas. And they say, you know, we've discovered that the universe is expanding, which means that it started in one spot, which meant that it had a beginning. And a lot of people who hate God hated that idea. They called it the Big Bang. And they're like, we hate that because if the universe had a beginning, then it has to have a cause. If it was always been here, then we can say it's just always been here. Nothing created it, it just always was. But if it had a beginning, then who began it? And it was a big debate that's been lost. I mean, the overwhelming consensus of science is that the Big Bang is real. The universe had a beginning. And as we look at 
the way that the universe is put together, we find that it's very, very specifically tuned. And I'm not going to get into all of that. If you want to listen to something great on that, listen to James Rochford's XSI teaching from the last week. Get online, XSI, James Rochford Plenary. He gets into the details of the astronomical values of how, you know. But the idea here is that there are so many different ways and factors that have to be tuned perfectly within incredible specifics. Like the force of gravity has to be in a specific place. The way that physics works has to be tuned so minutely down to such an incredible degree. It makes the idea that we are here by accident virtually impossible. And as a result, a lot of people, a lot of scientists are becoming open to this idea of what's called theism. They're not like, well, the Bible's right. God said, let there be light. No, they're not doing that. But what they're saying is, is there is no way that we are here without someone starting this and designing it to be this way. That's the answer that many are coming to. And that's a faith question. But it's faith based on reason and evidence. What is more likely that everything came out of nothing? If you're an atheist, this has to be your position. There was nothing, and then there was everything, and I'm comfortable with that. Or there was something that is eternal, that was always here, and it started it all. Now, there's a leap from that to biblical Christianity. I I grant that. But who has the evidence on their side? We do, very much so. There must have been a cause. And there must have been something that is eternal, that was always there, in order for there to be anything. I don't think the author of Hebrews necessarily had that in mind when he brought out that example, but it's an important aspect of understanding how faith is based in evidence. He says in verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which we obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And so he's pulling out these examples from the Old Testament, which his audience grew up with. They're super familiar. Cain and Abel, the first brothers, right? One made an offering in faith, it says, and God accepted it and deemed him righteous. The other made an offering, it doesn't say why, and God rejected it. These two brothers, Abel gave God a portion of the results of his labor because he loved God and wanted to give, something from, give God something from his life. You ever have your kid make something for you? You're like, wow. It's amazing. Even when it's really not amazing, it's amazing. This being thought about me, put something together, and gave it to me because they want me to be happy. Incredible. So Abel does that with God, and God is like, wow, that is awesome. Cain does the same thing, essentially, but for different reasons. We aren't totally in tune to why Cain did it. Maybe because his brother did it. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I made a gift for God. And he's like, uh-oh, I better make something. 
Maybe it was some sort of religious duty. Maybe he thought, if I give God this, maybe God will give me something. We don't know. We're not told what Cain's heart is. We're only told what Abel's heart is. Abel's heart was faith. Cain's heart was not. So you go all the way back to Genesis 4, and we say, what does God want from us? It's not our stuff. It's our faith. That's the author's point. Hebrews 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. One of the craziest things I don't even know what to tell you about in the entire Bible. (laughs) Early in Genesis, there was this guy, his name was Enoch. He was super cool, loved God, God loved him. They really got along and God was like, that's it, you're coming home with me and took him. Just said, and Enoch was not. (laughs) God was like, this is just too much fun. I don't want to visit. I want you to come home. And the author of Hebrews looks at that and is like, see? God loves to be with us. He wants to be connected with us. We can be close to him. We can have a real connection with him. Faith is relationally and eternally rewarding. God wanted to be with Enoch. He spent time with him. He connected with him. And for his own purposes that we don't understand, he said, "Um, I'm, I'm pulling you out. And he disappeared. I'm going to ask him when I see him, what was that about? That's like one of the top five probably. Like I would love to be like, Can I see the replay on that? (laughs) But it shows something. It shows something about the character and the nature of God. God's eager desire to be with us. He's so relational. He wants to be in our lives. And this life and what we have and what we experience and what we see, this is not how it's going to be. We are in a temporary disaster. A cataclysmic failure is the human condition And it's not going to go on like this forever. God says, I am going to bring you to a better place. But I will not kick down the door of your heart and drag you kicking and screaming with me into paradise in eternity. You have to want to come. Will you come? Will you choose relationship with him? He describes eternity, what it will be like, In Revelation 21.4, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, he says, God's speaking. He says, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The first things are all the things that we hate. It's all the injustice and all the murder and genocide and selfishness and greed and it's all of that are the first things the things that are a result of the brokenness of who we are and God says I'm going to wipe the slate clean of all of that and I'm going to wipe the tears from your eyes as you think about the pain of those things I think that would be very cathartic to have God standing there with a tissue wiping away your tears I think it would be like okay I'm over it I'm ready to move on. That, that would be amazing. 
He cares about the fact that we're hurting. And he has a plan to put an end to it. That's amazing. Finally, in our last passage for this morning, Hebrews 11, 1, 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Isn't that fascinating? It is impossible to please God without faith. Do you understand the implications of that? Do you understand what that really means? No matter what you do, no matter how good you are or how much service you perform, no matter how much you ritualize your life and light candles and pray and, and give money and, 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 and do whatever it is that you think God wants, God says it is impossible to please me without faith, without your heart being in it, without trusting me to the point of action. Wow. And that's why the first step is hard. The first step is hard because we, we can examine the evidence, and there's lots of different evidence. I encourage you to do that. Is this true? Is this real? Is this real? And you can come, and you can, you can be sort of intellectually convinced. Well, uh, the evidence seems like it points in that direction. I mean, there's problems. I don't have all my questions answered, but there is evidence to examine, and many people do, as they examine the evidence, come to believe, I think the God of the Bible is right. But that's not enough. That's the mental ascent. You have to also understand that you can't earn it. The God of the Bible is real. He wants us to be about love. Okay, I'll go out and do those things. And he says, wait a minute, before you do that, how about you receive my love? And we're like, mm, I think I'm just going to, I'm a doer God. Yeah, I understand. I like to do. So uh, thanks for coming into my life and showing me who you are. I'll take it from here. God says, that's, that's not a relationship. That's you in the driver's seat. The first step is hard because receiving God's forgiveness requires the understanding that we need forgiveness. How can we ask for forgiveness when we refuse to accept that we've done anything wrong? And God says that is the problem, is that we have done something wrong. We've rebelled. We've been selfish. That he has the perfect standard of goodness and love and that we all fall short of that standard and that is a serious issue from his perspective. We like to play around and say, well, I'm like better than like two-thirds of the people in this room. I can tell you that much. And God's like, that's not the standard. Have you ever lied? Have you ever hurt somebody? Have you ever lashed out in anger? Have you ever been selfish? Have you ever stolen? That's the issue. And my plan for eternity is that, is that it's going to be perfect without any of those first things. And in order to get there, we have to burn away all of your first things. And the way to do that is through Jesus Christ. He took the punishment that we deserve and he poured it out on Christ so that we could be forgiven. And the first step is in many ways the hardest step because it's to admit you can't earn it. You have to receive it. 
And for many of us, you know, we have lots of complicated ways of convincing ourselves that that doesn't really bother us. But at the end of the day, we want to be the ultimate authority in our own lives, and that is a threat to that. And we have to wrestle with it. You might be sitting there asking, well, how much do I have to believe? This was something that held me back for years. I thought about it too. How much do I have to believe? It's one of my big questions. Non-Christian, I'm like, do I have to take like all of it, like Enoch and flying into the sky and the flood and all of it? In order to start this, to, to be a Christian, because I'm not ready to do that. I don't know if I'll ever be ready to be like, I'm all in on the Bible. And my friend said to me, no, you have to be all in on you need forgiveness and God's willing to forgive you through Jesus Christ. And I was like, that's the only part. And they were like, that's, 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 the, that's the main part. All the other stuff you can wrestle with and, 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 and work on. But are you somebody who needs forgiveness? Are you willing to accept that you can't do this on your own and you need God? And I was like, yeah. I, I am ready for that. And they were like, then let's pray. And that's when I became a Christian who did not believe in most of the Bible. And then I wrestled with the things that I didn't believe, and I became a Bible teacher because I became convinced. With each of those areas where I fought God, he won every time. He wins every time. (laughs) It's really for the best. (laughs) Receiving God's forgiveness, though, is what this is about. Through Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9, and 11. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. We'll say, well, what about doubt? You know, I, I, I have these areas and I struggle with them. It's real simple. Doubt is real simple. There's good doubt. Good doubt is a quest for answers. And that's great. If you have questions and there are things that you don't believe and things that you don't understand, be vocal about those things. God's not afraid of your questions. He's the God of answers. Go on a journey to seek out truth. Talk to God and ask him to reveal answers to you. That is awesome. It's not like God's like, how dare you question me? He's like, what, what parent, if a kid went to you and been like, where do butterflies come? How dare you question me? You know, we would be like, we'd come up with something, right? <laughs> That's what God is like. He has answers and he loves our questions. Good doubt leads to action. Bad doubt is intellectually dishonest. It's using doubt as a foil. It's basically like I'm suspicious that this is true, so I'm going to pretend like I doubt it because I don't want it to be true. And that is not a quest for truth. That is a quest for control. And bad doubt won't accept the answers that it doesn't like, no matter how true they are. So what action can you take? What can we take away from this? It's simple. If you don't know him, open the door. He's knocking on the door of your heart right now. Open the door. Say, God, come into my life. I recognize that I can't do it on my own. I need you, Jesus. Take that step. 
believe and take the action. Maybe for some of us, God is challenging our life priorities. We've given, we've opened the door and now he's saying, you know, there's some things standing in the way from you moving forward with me. You're loved, you're saved, you're going to eternity, but God can do more in your life now to bring more truth and more purpose and more freedom. And he wants to do that, but you're saying no to him and he wants you to have faith, which is trusting in him to the point of action. Maybe it's something where God's calling you to serve people in a scary way and you're like, hmm, campus sounds messy. And he just wants you to trust him to the point of action. Maybe you have things that you're hiding and you know and they're weighing heavily on your heart. And God wants you to bring those things into the light so that you can have healing. Trust him to the point of action. See the last part of the verse, the last verse that we read? He is a rewarder of those who seek him. Trust that and take action. God, I'm, I'm excited to be with these guys and to hear about how you're moving in their lives and to be studying the word together. I do pray for anyone here that doesn't know you. I just pray that they will hear you knocking on the door of their heart. And if they won't open that door, God, I just pray that they will start asking questions. And for the rest of us, help us to be bold and help us to, to live and act on what you say is true and help us to support one another as we do it. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.